right? Praise the Lord. Let's turn to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. And we're going to talk about two chapters tonight. I was trying to do three, but I figured that you didn't want to get out of here at midnight. So I reduced it to two, which is still quite a challenge. But it's, the, it's an Old Testament passage. And those who teach Bible studies, this is a good way of understanding. Um, when you study the prophets, especially the minor prophets, a lot of times you, don't, you really can't do uh, what you do in the New Testament of breaking down doctrine and, 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 and exegetically dealing with the passage. You still exegeti uh, exegetically deal with the passage in the Old Testament, especially the prophets, but it's dealing with poetry, dealing with visions, dealing with the apocalyptic nature of things. So it's not so quite direct, straightforward, especially Hosea. Hosea is one of the toughest books in the Old Testament to study and to teach because of its complexity in the Hebrew language, its uh, double meaning in poetry. It has a lot of chiasm, meaning that uh, when it's, it's poetically, it has, uh, uh, you know, line one goes with line three, and line two goes with line four. It has a, a pattern of poetry, especially chapter four and on. Uh, thank God we're only chapter one and two. This is a straightforward history, but chapter two becomes a little complicated in terms of who Jose is talking to. And I'll, and I'll kind of give a little bit of insight of what scholars and, and um, people know way more than I do on what they argue about, which I don't know why they argue about things, but uh, gives them something to write and books to sell, I suppose. So in Hosea chapter 1 and 2, uh, we're not going to get to 3 today. I do want it to go. It's only five verses, but it's really, really good. So we're going to leave it up to next week. Promise and promiscuity. Promise and promiscuity. And it seems like we're talking about America 2017. But this is Israel around the time of the 8th century. Uh, Israel was going to go into captivity at some point. And Hosea, really, when you find Hosea in history, it's really quite fascinating because we really need to know our history. Yes, it's, it's some young, younger people than me believe history is boring, but you have to know that uh, people back then were just as smart as we were, probably smarter. And um, they knew things that we don't know today. And um, history tells us what not to do, more than anything, what not to do. The Apostle Paul told us about the Old Testament two things, one's in Romans and one's in Corinthians, that the things that were written about Israel, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, are written for us, not to us, but for us. And it's a very important thing exegetically when we deal with the Scriptures is to not to take some of these promises directly to you as as if it's going to happen to the U.S. or to our government or to us personally, but to really understand that they were written for Israel, for their time and their issue and their promiscuity and things that were going on. But Paul said they were written for us, meaning that we need to learn from this. We need to apply it as a people of God, as a new covenant people of God, as believers in the body of Christ. And we need to understand that the promises were for Israel and it applies to the church. And we need to really make that connection, and we really need to make a difference, too. There are things that are for both. There are things that are for Israel. There are things that are for the church. And there are things that are for both. And so when understanding the Old Testament, you need to keep all these things in mind. That's what's not so easy to get into these books and just say, okay, I, just, I know what it is. You have to study. And study takes time, and study takes a little bit of discipline. And it's not a YouTube video that you can watch about it. You really need to spend time in God's Word. And I think that's uh, the, the main aspect of it is where does Hosea stand? Well, Hosea stands in this period of about 300 years where all these Old Testament prophets, they're called the minor prophets, not because they were lesser, but because of their length of books. The, the, the length of the books are actually shorter than Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, even Daniel. But these are minor prophets and most of them actually spoke about concerning Israel and Judah before their time of exile. As you remember, Israel was exiled by Assyria, 722, the fall of Samaria, the capital, and uh, Judah, uh, 586 B.C., by Babylon. So you have to keep those things in mind that 
some of the prophets spoke about Israel, some of the prophets spoke about Judah, the southern kingdom. And then you have, like Zechariah, like Haggai, uh, Malachi, these are post-exilic prophets, meaning that they were written after Israel came back, after Judah came back from exile from Babylon, and they write in a very different tone and a very different aspect than the other ones. Obviously, the other ones were warning of judgment coming. Habak uh, Ze uh, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi speak of what do we do now and how do we look forward and what happened to the promises? Because Messiah is not here. We, we come back. The temple is lesser than what we, we had before. And of course, you have historical books, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, which were written prior to the exile. But then you have Chronicles, which if you've been to the Old Testament survey class, looks back after the exile, looks back at what happened and lament and kind of encourage and warn and uh, bring hope that Israel back in the land is God's blessing and God's hand is directing Israel back in the land because many of them had lost hope. And it's interesting that Hosea is actually the first book of this commentary on that time, the 12 minor prophets. The 12 minor prophets are a commentary on what was happened historically to Israel and Judah at the time. And the first one you encounter is Hosea. Why? Because it sets the tone. A lot of the things Hosea said, um, Isaiah also says, uh, Micah also talks about, and he has a very good handle on the Old Testament law, the, 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 the Torah, especially the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he was a voice to Israel, the northern kingdom. He was from the north. He was a northern, northerner. He was a northern boy. And he warns of Israel, to Israel about judgment coming because of the promiscuity of the people. Not only a real promiscuity within the nation, but the spiritual promiscuity of Israel, spiritually, a harlot, had gone after other gods. And that sets the tone for Hosea's message. Why? Because he lived it. He was a man that was married to an immoral woman who during his marriage with her, Gomer, kept going away from him, away from him with her lovers. And so he lived the message in which he embodies the sentiment of God. God feels this way. The pain of infidelity is what God feels. And so the unity of the message, the, the prophet who is, um, in this case, Hosea is not, necessarily going for the future. You think of a prophet going to a trance and talk about the future. A prophet, most of his messages are a, a warning, given the word of God, reminding people of Moses, reminding people of the law, reminding people to go back to the word of God. That's what the message was. And it was a, uh, an explanation from God's perspective of the time in which they live in. So this is why the minor prophets are so important. It's an explanation from God to the people from God's perspective of what was going on. I wonder what would God say about the time in which we live in today, right? Um, by the way, they are New Testament prophets. It is true. Old New Testaments are prophets, and prophets are, are raised by God for, the, for his people, not for the nations. Very important to remember New Testament terms we will not have a prophet that will go to the U.S., <laughs> uh, to the U.S. government or to, you know, another or Russian government. We will have a prophetic voice in the church that will be for the church because it's God wanting his people to turn from sin back to himself. And the prophets were a voice from God's perspective what the time was about. And Israel had a great prosperity at this time. They were being blessed tremendously. We're told in Kings, Jeroboam, the king in which Hosea served or was prophesying under, had expanded the borders, had, had become very wealthy and powerful. But it was short-lived because from God's perspective, this is a very dark time in Israel's history. Probably just as bad, maybe as equally as the time of the judges, except they had kings, so they had no excuse. 
and the kings, they had no, no king. It was supposed to be, in the book of Judges, they had no king. It was supposed to be God. But they behave as if God didn't even exist. And so you see this, this, this relationship of Hosea and Gomer, which symbolizes God and Israel. And we look up ahead, just slightly ahead, and we see that's the relationship between Jesus and his church. So this is where the application is. It is for Israel and their relationship with God, which, by the way, still holds together. We're going to get to that. Uh, maybe we'll do a message on, on the dangers of uh, replacement theology on one of these Wednesdays because it fits within the aspect of what we're trying to say here. Uh, God's not done away with his people. So some of the promises of Hosea is still for future. It wasn't just ended with the people of Israel. But Jesus in the church, ultimately, we can learn about our relationship with Jesus through the book of Hosea. But let's get into it because we're going to read about history. We're going to read about some of the things Hosea did and some of the things that he embodied the sentiment of God. He represents God's relationship with Israel. Gomer represents Israel's relationship with God, his wife. And we see how that goes. Verse 1, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Automatically, you say, you lost me too many names. Very simple. Uh, it, it is quite striking that Hosea, even though he went to the northern kingdom, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom, he mentions the southern kings more than the northern kingdom uh, kings. He mentions Ahaz, Hezekiah, Uzziah, Jotham, and he only mentions one king from the north, Jeroboam, which would have been Jeroboam II, the son of Joash. And during this time, and, and, and scholars argue, why did he do that? I, I think the answer is very simple. I think um, God had a message for the northern kingdom, and during the time of Jeroboam, after Jeroboam died, six kings over 30 years covered the span, and then they were exiled. Jeroboam was actually the last recognizable, steady king that they had. And you should see some of the history. All you have to do is read 1 Kings 15, 2 Kings 15 till the end, and you'll see that there were six kings, and most of them were murdered. It was like, you know, you ever see the show Dynasty or something like that? Or, or um, you know, it was, it was like the Sopranos. It was just like one guy rose into power three days later, killed. Another guy rose up into power six months later, killed. And it was just like, it's, it's on and on it went until finally the last king of Israel was exiled into, um, into Assyria. And so he mentions only one, Jeroboam, and he mentions all the kings of Judah, at least the, some faithful kings of Judah, especially Hezekiah uh, and Uzziah, because there's a point about Judah that it's going to be made in this, in this chapter. Um, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, verse 2, now, this is specifically the ministry of Hosea beginning. God has spoken to him, but now this is very specific, and in the Hebrew is very specific. This is the beginning of Hosea's ministry. The Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry. And there's a, I won't even bore you. With, I've read so many boring books about this verse too. Not that the Bible's boring, but just the commentary. You know, was she... Uh, some people were saying, he wasn't a harlot, this is an allegory, this is just a story, and they argue about, it wasn't real, Gomer's not real, Hosea just trying to give us an example of what it would have been like to marry you know, somebody that committed immorality and things like that, and on and on, there's like eight explanations. The very simple explanation is just to read the Bible and just to say, what exactly, who, who was Gomer? A wife of harlotry, literally an immoral woman an immoral woman. Now, whether she was a harlot uh, before or afterwards, um, some scholars argue about that too. Did he marry somebody that was, had the propensity? Did he marry somebody that was already a harlot and he married her and they can't imagine God telling somebody to go marry uh, a harlot? And this is very specific. I believe it's straightforward meaning is always the clearest and the best. Literally, the Hebrew means she was a, a, an immoral woman. That's what it was. Uh, whether she was a prostitute or not, we don't know. However, it doesn't really matter if she was a prostitute or not because in those days, women uh, didn't have much rights, didn't have any rights, if any, in terms of uh, in the culture, uh, unless they had a husband. 
and women that were widowed or women that, couldn't, that weren't married uh, really end up in poverty. And uh, of course, the Lord gave Israel uh, commandments to take care of the poor, and they were being taken care of, of course. But when a woman in that culture wasn't, didn't want to be taken care of uh, like that, sort of an independent woman, they oftentimes relegated to prostitution to get what they wanted. And so they would, uh, uh, and it wasn't even just l prostitution in terms of they were at a brothel. They lived like a prostitute. They lived for things. So they would engage in sexual relationships with other men for wine, for oil, for clothing. Um, and that's basically what a prostitute does. Now, so I'm trying to make it clear, it didn't, it doesn't really matter whether she worked at a brothel or not. She lived as an immoral woman. Now the question automatically comes up, why would God tell Hosea to do this? And his commentators can't imagine that God would do that. Now it says, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant har harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And here's the explanation why Hosea, been a good, good godly man, I want you to go marry an immoral woman. Now, why, God? Because, Hosea, I want to teach you something. And I want to teach Israel something. That what you're going to feel is how I feel. And most of what we learn about God in Hosea, it's not doctrine in a sense of breaking down the scriptures and doctrine and statements of faith that we put up all over the wall. We're going to know a God who loves and is passionate about his people. So much so he is hurt by Israel turning his back, her back on him. And that's something we have to remember about God. God is a God who's personal. He's, it's not some cold statement of faith relationship that we have with God. I know sometimes we relegate God to statements of faith. You know, are you a Christian? Yeah, look, I, here's my statement of faith. <laughs> and we relegate our relationship with God to cold ordinances. And there's nothing wrong with statements of faith if that's all we have, it's, it's not really what we need. We need a vibrant, real relationship with Jesus through his spirit, where we love him, where we sense his love, his, we sense, and, and I'm not talking about feelings, but we're talking about his closeness. We're talking about his word. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about commitment and faithfulness and love and purity and holiness and passion we have toward God and, and we understand him uh, on a personal level, not just through statements of faith. You know, where we say, oh, I'm a Christian because I, I you know, I don't know why, but here, here it is. Look, I am, you know, uh, because we know God, because we talked to him this morning, <laughs> because we have been in fellowship with him today. And that's why we know God in his word, through his spirit. And it says that Gomer... It's the wife's name, verse 3. Took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, which, by the way, is really fascinating. Just as a side note, uh, she was a real person because it actually gives the name of her father. Now, if it was an allegory, it would be really hard to, now you made up another thing. You know, now, some people say it's an allegory, meaning that it's not real. They're just some fascinating ideas that people had. But in reality, Gomer was a real person. So was Hosea. So it was the situation. And bore him a son, and the, and the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. Now the idea of Jezreel here, it has a double meaning. And this is where it, it becomes really fascinating to study, but at the same time really hard to express in a very short time everything that it means. Because Jezreel, it, it, it literally means to sow, like sowing a seed, or to scatter a seed, right? But it has a double connotation. If you scatter something, it could be good, you're scattering seed, but it also could be a bad thing because you're scattering them, not in unity, but now you're putting them all over the place, uh, literally to sow or to scatter. And depending on the context, you can get the idea of this is a bad thing or this is a good thing. Now, in Hosea, you're going to find reversals all the time, meaning that something that was bad because of God's promise, it ends up being something good. Now, that's exactly what the New Testament says. God worked things together for good, even the bad things, right? There's great reversals in this book of things that were bad, it ended up being good. It ended up, this horrible thing that happened ends up being a blessing to the nation. 
And what happens here is Jezreel uh, scattered, right? And for yet a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here's another thing. Jezreel is actually a physical location. It is actually the place where the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. I know we call it the valley of Armageddon, uh, the, the war, or the, we call it the, 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 the war of Armageddon. But Armageddon is really just a, a little hill just south of Mount Gilboa. It's just a little hill. But what people mean by it, it's a totally different thing. What they mean by it is this great plain in the north, from Galilee all the way down, is called the Valley of Jezreel. So here's, a double, here's going to be a double meaning here because this is the battle places. This is where the battles took place. This is where the battle of Deborah took place and Barak, right, where they defeated the enemies of Israel. This is the, the place where Gideon fought. And this is the place of great strength of Israel, but something that God says here very specifically, he will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Meaning that the pride and the strength of Israel is going to be broken by God in the place of their strength. Where they think they have the most strength, it's going to be the greatest defeat. And Jehu comes up and you're like, who is this Jehu? Um, well, you have to know a little bit of your history of the book of Kings. And I'll summarize it in just a few minutes. Jehu was somebody that was raised up by God at a time of great wickedness to judge the house of Ahab. If you remember, Ahab had a lovely wife um, named Jezebel. And Jezebel kind of knew how to get around things and kind of kill things or people how to kill people without anybody knowing. That sounds like people I know and people that are in politics today. They are very good at hiding murders without anybody knowing about it. She played the political game. And Ahab was her husband, but she really was the hands behind the throne. And um, one day, 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab at the Valley of Jezreel, so check this out, the Valley of Jezreel, sees a vineyard. It's Naboth vineyard. And he wants to have the vineyard that belonged to a man named Naboth. And he says, I'll give you whatever money, whatever, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Just give me the vineyard. I want to have it for myself. Naboth says, no, this is, this is mine. I can't sell it to you. And uh, Ahab throws a, a, a tantrum. Kind of would have been at the women's march or at the inauguration. Just throws a tantrum. They can't have it. They cannot have it. And he goes to a battle, and he loses the battle, and he comes home, and he's pouting. And Jezebel comes to his room and says, what are you acting like a baby? What, act like a king. And then, oh, I can't have the vineyard. The neighbor won't give it to me. And this is like, I'll, I'll make sure you get it. Don't worry about it. So he sets up this banquet, invites Naboth, sits him right across from two false witnesses who say, uh, Naboth has cursed God and the king. And then they kill him. And they kill Naboth. And they go, oh, here's the vineyard. And Ahab's really excited about it. He doesn't stop it. He just lets it go. And Elijah shows up. Now, this is fascinating. You've got to read it. I'm not doing justice to it. I'm giving you like the cliff note version. And Elijah shows up and he says, you know, you did this. This is terrible. I can't believe it. God's going to judge you. God's going to curse your line. God's going to get rid of your house, Ahab, because you took Naboth vineyard and you allowed this wicked woman. You sold yourself to evil, literally. You are addicted to evil. You're addicted to sin, Ahab. Now imagine that kind of language. Uh, and it's a very interesting thing because Ahab was addicted to sin, like a drug. Uh, you know, people that do drugs, people that are uh, heroin or something like that, everything around, everything about their lives, is, everything in their lives is about the drug. They, they'll sell anything to get that drug. They will do anything. Uh, the, the, a little bit of money goes into the drug. A little bit of this, go, they'll sell this, they'll sell that. They'll give themselves over to prostitution just to get the drug. And there's people like that about sin. They're bent on sin. They, they want this. They can't get away from it. And therefore, Ahab said, uh, Elijah tells Ahab, that's you. And Ahab repents. And he cries out to God and he tears his clothes. And God, God says to Elijah, Elijah, tell him that I'm going to forgive him. Imagine the grace of God. I mean, we've been told the Old Testament is such a terrible, judgmental God that's ready to pounce everybody on the head. He said, I'm going to have mercy on you. Your judgment is not going to come 
when you live. Your judgment will come on your house, but I'm going to spare you, and I'm going to forgive you, but judgment will not come during your lifetime. And God allows this mercy on Ahab, and his kids are actually the ones that continue in his evil path with their mother, Jezebel, and God raises up this Jehu, Yehu, and he does what God says to do, and that is to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. And he goes completely ballistic on this. He be, I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible to read the murders, the, the bloodshed that this man, he was like an assassin sent by God to judge the house of Ahab. And it says that he killed not only the king of uh, uh, the, 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 the sons of Ahab who were, who were fighting for the throne, but the kings of Ju the king of Judah, the prophets of Baal. I mean, he was on a rampage. Just, uh, and, and then he gets to Jezebel, and any of the story, Jezebel gets thrown off the, 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 the story, the second story building, and gets thrown down, and and uh, she dies as he you know falls to the ground, and then uh, the the dogs lick the the or eat actually literally eat her. It's exactly what Elijah said. And uh, by the way, he also prophesied that uh, Ahab's, uh, the dogs will lick Ahab's blood, and they did, because when he died, the dogs were, they were kind of washing the, 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 the chariot, and the dogs actually licked the blood off of Ahab's chariot. It completely just terrible. It was like, what, what are you telling all this? Because Jehu not only went so far at killing everything, he was just a complete uh, assassin. But the Bible says he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. He followed after Jeroboam the first, and God judged Jehu. And not only judged Jehu, but he only allowed his line to live four generations. There basically four kings from Jehu's line. He becomes the king, and four kings from his loins end up being kings of Israel, but eventually his line dies. And here is a message from God to say, to Jehu, it's going to happen to him what happened to the people that he judged. It's going to happen to him in his line because he did not follow in my ways. And see, there are people that God will use in the Old Testament, especially like Assyria or Babylon, that God used to judge other nations. But when those nations did not walk in their way, God judged them. So God's in control. You know, some people can be raised up by God and used by God, but if they don't walk in his ways, God could even get rid of them. You know, I, I'm, I'm confident and believe that Islam has been raised up by God, allowed by God to be raised up to judge uh, Western democracies, uh, the countries that followed God at one point. But when Islam has gone too far, God will get rid of Islam. That's the way God is. He judges and no one else. And he has raised up Jehu for that purpose. But unfortunately, Jehu not only went too far, but he did not walk in the ways of the Lord. And so now you see, verse 6, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her La Ruhama. I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should forever forgive them. Now, it's interesting, has another, another baby comes along. Now, this one specifically says, that um, Jezreel was born to Hosea. Uh, verse 6 says that she had gave birth to a daughter, and she's going to have another son after this. What's interesting about this is, it's very specific, Jezreel was born to Hosea. The next two are born to her. Scholars argue, and I tend to lean this way, that the children of harlotry, there's a double word, a double meaning, the children of harlotry is that they were not Hosea's sons. They were not Hosea's children. Uh, that they were, um, by her harlotry, had babies outside out of wedlock. And they named the, name the daughter Lo-Rahama, which means no love, no mercy, no compassion. Talk about a baby that needed love and compassion. Talk about a bad name to give. I mean, it would have been so scandalous. Now, imagine Hosea bringing his little girl up around town, and everybody commented, oh, that's not your daughter. How can you raise your daughter? I can't believe that's not your daughter. You, you know, these are, you know, you don't even know who the father is. But there was a, a, a point here that God was trying to make, and that was, you, Israel, you are Lorahama, because you have gone to Baal. You have gone in adultery, just like Gomer did. You have gone into adultery. 
and God doesn't know who you are. Are you now the children of harlotry? Are you now the children of Baal? You're certainly not behaving like the children of God. And you see, Lord Rahama becomes this, this symbol. The name becomes a very symbolic meaning of the relationship that God had with Israel. By the way, if you study Isaiah 7 and 8, it's the same thing. The names of the kids represent something that God is declaring to the nations. And even Isaiah says, Isaiah 8.18 says that God was teaching me something about the nation through, the kid, through my kids' names. And it's very specifically when God chooses a name that is trying to tell us something. Lo Rahama, no compassion, no mercy. But it says that I, uh, that I will no longer have compassion that I should ever forgive them. Now, in Hebrew, it's a very, very, uh, um, it's a double meaning there. It literally means that I will completely forgive them. That I will completely forgive them. I will have no compassion, but I will completely forgive them. It could be read that way, by the way, in Hebrew. I will have no compassion, but I will completely forgive them. Now, what is God saying here? God's saying that he is always going to leave a door open for him to receive back those who repent. Now, the children of Israel at the time, they were not going to be forgiven because they went into exile. But when the promise, the promise is when they come back, God will receive them back. And you'll see it in a moment. So God leaves always a door open. There's always, even in judgment, God gives a way back. That's how good our Lord is. That even when you're in sin and immorality and idolatry, God may discipline you and correct you and chastise you and take you out, but he always leaves a way back. That if you're willing, he's able to bring you back. And that's the reality. Now, verse 7, I will give compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God, and I will not deliver them by the bow or the sword or battle or, horse, or horsemen. Judah was going to have compassion. They lived on for another 150 years later, and they were judged eventually. But when she had weaned Lo-Rahama, she conceived and birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. So now a son is born. And this one is it's even worse. Not my people. No compassion, not my people. Why? Because of this infidelity, this adultery that was happening, not only within the nation, that was happening, but spiritually against the Lord. And it's something that we have to look at as we look at Hosea, and you have your bifocals on. Hope you brought them. Um, you look up at your bifocals now, and you look up, and there you see the people of God in the New Testament. We are also called to be faithful to Jesus. And we're also called to be holy unto the Lord as a, as a bride as unto her husband. Paul talked about that to the Corinthians. That you are betrothed to, to Christ. That God wants a bride that is pure, that is holy, without blemish. Just like Israel was judged by the same standard. The standards have not changed the covenant has changed, thank the Lord. The spirit is dispensed to all who believe, praise the Lord. But the, 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 the sin is no less serious when we go away from the Lord and get our bales. And you'll see what that means in a moment. But God makes a promise. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea. Where'd you hear that from before? It's the promise to Abraham, right? Genesis 22. Your descendants will be as the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured, and it will come about in that place where it says to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Now, there's a reversal there, right? Lo ami, you are not my people. In the place where you were called, you're not my people, I will bring you back, and I will call you, you are the sons of the living God. Now, who's the promise for? First, Israel. See, you have a big problem exegetically, as well as hermeneutically, if you just apply this to the church. Now, Paul uses that, and we'll maybe get to the end of our study tonight. We'll get to Paul. He uses that same verse where he talks about Gentiles coming in, that God did not just choose Jews only, but also Gentiles as well, together in the body of Christ. 
And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader. And they will go up from the land from great for great will be the day of Jezreel. Israel had some broken promises, but God kept his promise. Hey, we need to stand in God's promise. They broke them. They, they made the covenant. They said, we're going to do whatever God says on Mount Sinai. We will follow the Lord, even under the chuppah. Remember last, last week we talked about under the chuppah? There was adultery under the chuppah. As soon as Moses comes down, they were worshiping a calf. didn't even last long. And the voice of Hosea would have been incredibly powerful at this time because he's saying, look, it's judgment is coming to this idolatrous, adulterous generation. Look at my kids, Jezreel, you'll be scattered. Lo, lo Rahama, no compassion. Lo Ami, you're now my people. Wait a minute, we're God's people. We're children of Abraham. What did John the Baptist say? To the children, to the Pharisees, God can raise up stones and make kids for Abraham. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. It's ready for judgment. And that was for Israel. But it also applies to the church. If the church goes astray, if the church becomes idolatrous and moral and adulterous, God will bring judgment in the house of God, it says. First Peter says judgment begins in the house of God. Why? Because God wants his people to be like him, to be holy. Now the standard, the standard has always been the Lord. It's always been Jesus. Now by his spirit, we're called to be faithful. But Hosea's message would have been like, look at my wife. She's now in bondage to, these, to her lovers. And we'll read it later on in chapter 4 and chapter 5, these incredible discourses of Hosea, of how he describes Gomer and describes the relationship of Israel. But the, the, the covenant, it's in neglect now. What they started in Sinai, heading toward the New Jerusalem, hits a very big bump on the road. Hosea says, look, something's gone wrong, terribly wrong. You're worshiping this Baal, the Lord of the harvest. By the way, where Baal means husband or master, Lord. That's what it means. And I can't get away from the pain that Hosea felt. As a real man, as a real person, he felt the pain of infidelity. He felt the pain, how difficult it is to deal with somebody that doesn't love you back and to love them and to love them and to love them. And that's what the message of Hosea was. To say, you know, the Lord will say, Hosea, now you have your message. Go out and tell them, because you know how I feel. And boy, he knew how he felt, because exactly what Hosea raises up, it's the standard, Deuteronomy. And we keep, we're going to keep going back to Deuteronomy throughout the studies, because it is the reminder of the covenant that they made. Now, Christians, we are grafted into the covenant, aren't we? The new covenant, we're grafted into that covenant. It was made with Israel, Jeremiah 31. But by virtue of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we enter in by faith and repentance into a relationship with God, and then we benefit from the new covenant. But they had a covenant. Israel had a covenant, the old covenant. And that was the reminder. What was the reminder is if you follow faithful, you would be totally blessed in the land, and I'll take care of you. I'll fight your enemies. I'll fight your battles. I'll get rid of your enemies. I will be sown in the land. You'll have fruit. You'll have harvest. You'll be glorious. You'll have a king. It'll be marvelous. Adultery. Right away. They weren't faithful. So God says, you know what's going to happen when you're not faithful? You'll be driven out of the land. The land will spew you out. Your sons will be given into all kinds of sinful things. The nations will scoff at you. You will be hated. You will be a derision among the nations. You will suffer tremendous pain and persecution because you did not follow me, Deuteronomy 28, uh, as well as uh, Leviticus 26, I believe, where the, uh, the, 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 the blessings and the curses of the law, and it's to this day still Israel, it's under the curse of the law because they cannot keep it and they don't have a sacrifice. And that they're not able to maintain that relationship with God. Because now there is only one sacrifice that the Lord will accept. And that is their own Messiah. But they had set up these calves. And, 
And, and yet God was going to do something tremendous. God was going to bring her back from the wilderness to speak tenderly to her. This is very fascinating. We're going to get to chapter 2. Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah, contend, literally, rebuke your mother. Contend, for she's not my wife, and I'm not her husband, and let her put her away, her harlotry from her face, and adultery from her, between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as a, in the day that she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like a desert land, and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry. Now, the fascinating thing is, is now chapter 2 becomes a, a response of Hosea to Gomer. But God is speaking through Hosea to Israel. So there's a double layer here. It's Hosea talking about his wife, but God begins to talk about Israel at the same time. So we have to keep those things... Um, I just want to make sure... I keep, yeah, we have to keep those things in mind. Go to her, rebuke your mother for her harlotry. And it's, it's fascinating here that there is this idea of exposing her in verse 3. Uh, in verse 2, she's not my wife. For a time, now this is not talking about divorce specifically here, but we know in Jeremiah 3, God gave Israel a divorce. Now, it's very important to remember that. Some people will say, oh, God never divorced Israel. Yes, he did. He gave her a certificate of divorce. Individual Jews can come back and make, have a relationship with the Lord, but God broke the relationship with Israel because Israel turned her back on him. But God makes a promise. I will betroth you back. I will bring you back. Now, the, the, the most important thing here is remember, the nation broke with God. God broke with the nation, with, with the nation of Israel. But God always maintained faithfulness to Israel to bring her back eventually. But he says to her, You're not my wife. Verse 2. I will expose you. I uh, literally uh, put her harlotry from her face and her adultery from her breast. Literally, this was something that an, a, a, a prostitute would do. They would wear these ornaments. Um, but, like a, some kind of jewelry, and on her face, some kind of jewelry as well, to depict themselves as prostitutes. And Hosea is saying, tell your mother to put those things away. Tell Israel to put the bales away. Tell Israel to put the false teachings away. And it goes on in verse 5, For their mother has played the harlot, she who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her that she cannot find her way. So the punishment was severe. God was going to dry up everything, was going to dry up all her blessings because she thought she could get it from her other lovers. Now, it's interesting. Gomer would have gone to her other lovers and be sustained by her other lovers when Hosea should have been the one providing for her. But Israel goes to the Baals, to the Ishtaroth, and especially Baals here. But it goes to all these different gods to find food, sustain, you know, some kind of sustenance. And the reality is that God was providing everything for her. But God is going to surround her. Look what verse 6 says. I will hedge a wall, literally a wall to her, so that she cannot find her path. Verse 7, she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she'll say, I will go back to my first husband. And it's, it's a fascinating thing. If you follow this, I didn't write it down, but you can follow this. Verse 5 is her sin. This is what you've done. You've gone after other lovers. Verse 6 is your punishment. I will build a hedge around you. You're not going to find your path. Verse 7, there's a redemption. I will come back to my husband. There's a hope that she might find her husband. And she will seek them, but will not find them. Then I will say, I will go back to my first husband. Verse 7, for it was better for me than, uh, for me then than now. There's a hope that maybe she'd come back. God was going to dry up all the blessings for Israel. All the things that she received in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, would be all dried up. And now what, Israel? Now what are you going to do? 
It's saying this is the nature of man. I see this and I go, man, that's like us. The reality of it is when everything's going great and everything's going good, we really have lack of sensitivity to sin in our lives because we're being blessed. Hey, if I was doing something wrong, God will tell me about it, right? And we don't realize that God is patient with us many times. But boy, when things go bad, when the well dry, runs dry, when there's nothing coming out of that spigot, when that ATM goes bad, oh, Lord, what have I done? Oh, God, please help me. I need to return to you. God, maybe I'll go to church next week. I'll go to church every day next week. And all of a sudden, they're back, and oh, man, what happened? Man, he's going to walk with the Lord. And what happened six months ago? Well, you know, just got to cut up in different things. And, and that's what Israel, what was God hoping for? God was hoping that she would say, all that stuff, I need to come back to my first husband. I need to come back to the Lord. I need to come back to God. She was hoping, he was hoping, but then verse 8 follows the same pattern. Here's her sin again. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and lavished her with silver, which they used for Baal. So God blessed her. I mean, imagine this. And this is so true even of ourselves. Everything we have is from the Lord. Everything we have. Your brains, right? Your brains or my lack thereof brains or whatever it is. Your intelligence, your ability to make money, your ability to work from God. The things you have from God. The breath you have from God. And yet, the very thing that he gives us, we use it for everything else but God. And then, oh, we don't have time in prayer meeting, oh, man, I got this other thing. Oh, we got to go out here. Oh, we got this other thing. Oh, man, Sundays and Wednesdays. Oh, we got this other thing. Well, who gave you the resources? God, but we're using it for a bail. Now, by the way, we all have bails. You just have to knock them down. Well, I don't have a bail. Bail, remember this. What was the, the issue with Israel was that they were worshiping God in Baal, side by side. They actually found nothing wrong with that idea uh, because they said, well, you know, God is the Lord and Baal's the Lord too, the Lord of the harvest. So if we just kind of combine everything together, then we can have it both ways. We can worship God and have the, you know, they didn't have a temple, but they had the two places, right? Samaria, Bethel, and Dan, and they can go up and worship the calf. And they thought, hey, we're worshiping God in a different way. And they justified it. That's very good about justifying. In fact, never be surprised how far humanity, men and women, will go to justify your sin. I mean, I've been told that, a, you know, wives or husband, um, leave my husband, leave my wife, because God told me. Really? I don't ever, ever, ever heard God say that uh, or even, even implied it in the Bible. Well, you know, he wants me so happy, and this man doesn't make me happy, and therefore I need to be happy, and, and then I need to find this man, he's so good-looking guy, or this good-looking girl, and, you know, my wife's not what she looked like before, and all this stuff, and it's, it's just, I mean, it's like, it gives me a headache, first of all, but how did you come to that conclusion at the end? And, uh, of course, don't ever be surprised at how they justify it. You know, it wasn't God's will, you know, 20 years, it wasn't God's will for me to marry that woman. Well, you thought about it now? <laughs> How about before you got married? Because once you're married, it's until death, right? It's until death it was apart. That's the reality of it. But Israel justified it. And they used it to worship Baals. And we, anything that takes up your time, honestly, anything that takes up your time, that divorces you away from God, his word, his people, it's a bail. Now, under that criteria, we need to look at our lives pretty close. Anything that takes up our time. I don't have time to worship God because the game's on. You just lifted up a bail. I don't have time to really study the Bible because the show's on. Or I didn't even know what shows are on, so forgive me if I mention a show from the 1980s. Uh, was that? Alf. Alf, yes, if Alf is on. You know, or Game of Thrones, or um, what people watch, I have no idea. Um, the Voice, you know, or American Idol, or which is a fascinating, you know, 
allusion to American having an idol. But every, anything that takes up the time, I'm honestly saying that. Anything that takes up your time away from that, now it's more important. Now it's greater than, than the Lord. I'm not saying live at church 24-7, but anything that takes you away from his people, his word, his, the time of prayer, when you're too busy to do that, maybe that thing has become Baal. Now, I'm not talking about your responsibilities, but I'm referring to things that we may build up around us to say, this is important, this is important, this is important. And the reality of it is, God says, well, I gave you those things. Now you're using it to spend time. I gave you the money, I gave you the smarts, I gave you the house, I gave you the cars, I gave you the things that you needed, and now you're using it to follow Baal. Now let's continue, because i got to finish. Verse 9, therefore I will take my back my grain of the harvest and my new wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand, and I will put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, new moons, and Sabbaths. So all her yearly feasts, monthly new moons, the um, monthly feasts, and weekly feasts, the Sabbath, and all her festal assemblies, and I will destroy her vines of the fig tree, which... He said, these are my wages, and my lovers have given them to me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the fields will devour them, and I will punish her for the days of Baals, and for, the use, uh, for she used to offer sacrifices, and she adorned herself with her earrings and jewelry and followed her lover, so that she forgot me, says the Lord. That's a summary of the sin of Israel. But there's restoration. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her back to the wilderness. And the idea of the wilderness here is the idea of where we first begun. Where did God court Israel? It was in the wilderness. He married her in Mount Sinai, right? The point is he's bringing her back to where we started. And this is a great thing for couples too. Remember if couples, you know, if couples are having a difficult time, you know, battles and arguing, it's always good to go back to the beginning. Where did we start? Let's start over. It's what God's saying. Let's start over. Hey, I'm willing to start over. I'll, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back where we started. Remember that honeymoon we had in wherever it was? Uh, remember that time? Remember that place? It was in the wilderness. I loved you in the wilderness. Let's go back. Remember the vows we made? That's what God's saying here. And then I will give her to vineyard, uh, I will give her the vineyards from there to the valley of Achor as a door of hope. As a door of hope. This was fascinating. The word hope literally means tikva, tikva, uh, actually the Israeli station in Israel, it shares a lot of gospel music, it's called tikva, hope, but it's also the word for cord, cord, in Joshua chapter 2, uh, chapter, yeah, chapter 2, we're told that Rahab had a cord, and it's the word for hope, tikva, cord, and hope, it's the same word, now who used it, it was Rahab, who was Rahab? A prostitute. What was Gomer? What was Israel? Hosea is using very vivid examples to bring us back. Now, the Valley of Achor is a terrible place. This is where Achan was killed. This is where um, uh, really bad things happened at the time of Joshua. But when they got right with the Lord, it was when they defeated the, thing, uh, the Battle of Jericho, the Battle of Ai. When they defeated the nations, they had a door of hope. And that is the word for cord. Rahab had the cord. There's very significant here. We're not going to spend so much time on it, but to remember that hope and cord is the same word. There's a scarlet cord. There's a hope that comes from the Messiah. There's a door that he is the, he is the door that we need to go through. Now, it'll come about in that day, and that's very specific. In the day, in that day, it's a code word for this is something prophetically. Prophets use it all the time. Just remember that one. In that day, when you see it in the Old Testament prophets, it's signifying a future event, a future hope. What is going to happen? You will call me, and it says Ishi, literally means my husband, and, and you will no, lo, no longer call me Bali, meaning a master or even husband too. And God's making a play on words here. You're going to call me husband, and you're not going to call me Baal anymore because you've been confusing me with that Baal. 
and I'm no longer going to be associated with that name. In fact, you're not going to call me that. You're going to call me your husband. Verse 17, and I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, that there will be no mention by the names no more. In that day, I will make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things, similar to Genesis 1. And I will abolish the bow and the sword, of, uh, uh, the sword and war for that land, and I will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me forever. The beautiful promises of God to restore Israel. This is future Israel, even to this day. And I will betroth you to me, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice um, and in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And look at all these wonderful words. You should get a pen, like I have here. And just mark them. Righteousness, justice, loving kindness, hesed. We talked about that last week. Compassion. These are the things God wants to do for Israel. He wants to marry her under those terms. And he wants to bring us to himself under those terms. And I will betroth you in faithfulness that you will know the Lord. See, the point of, 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 of the word of God to the people of Israel is that they will know him. And the word know there is the word, really, the intimacy word between a husband and a wife. Right? They will know. You know each other. You will know the Lord. By the way, in Ezekiel, it's the same word. When God brings Israel back, the bones, remember the bones, the dry bones, get up, and they have this battle, and God it's formidable against the nations, destroy the nations, and he says, so they will know that I am the Lord. Israel, I don't do it because you're great. I don't do it because you're awesome. I don't do it because you're faithful. I do it for my name's sake, so you will know me. God has a promise to Abraham. He cannot break that promise. He will not make that prom break that promise. I know some people, even they've written books and teach the Bible that says God has broken his promise to Israel. I don't know, they get, it. they get it from a book. They didn't get it from the Bible. But the Bible says that he will not cast away his people. He will not cast away his people. And, and, and the idea there is specifically for Israel, but, it actually, uh, but in actuality, too, it applies to the church as well. He will not cast away his people. He will not uh, get rid of Israel, as some people have said, uh, but I will come about in that day that I will respond, says the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. You see that? I will respond, says the Lord. Now, the reality here, and I have this little picture here. I'll explain what that means in a moment. I will respond. That means that they had to call out to God. God responds. Somebody called out to God. And, of course, we'll get to that next week. Uh, the remnant of Israel in the wilderness that we talk about next week where Israel is taken to the wilderness, Revelation 12, and the remnant cries out to God. And there's a beautiful response from the Lord to bring that remnant through uh, the day of the Lord and to bring them to the time where they would see Jesus and they will, uh, uh, they will cry out for him who they pierced and mourn for him. In the wilderness, it says in Revelation 12. Uh, Isaiah 63, the same thing. In the wilderness, God will bring them to the point where they will cry out to him. Jesus says, you won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he says, I will respond. God is going to respond to Israel. Verse 20, uh, 23, uh, 22. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel, and I will sow her to myself in the land. Now remember those reversals? Jezreel in chapter 1 meant bad, scattered, no good. Here, he's going to plant them in Israel. He's going to put them in the land. So now Jezreel means something good. And I will have compassion. Remember what Lo Ruhama meant? No compassion. Here God says, I will have compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, Lo Ami, you are my people, ami. See, the word lo, lo ami, or lo ruhama, the word lo means no. But when you take away the lo, you have ami, my people. You are my people, and they will say, you are my God. What a beautiful end to chapter 2. In that place 
where they said, you're not my people. God says, you are my people. You are the sons of the living God, chapter 1 says. And you know, Paul says that in Romans chapter 9, that God has not only just brought the Jews only, but it also has brought the Gentiles. And in the same way, where it says, and as he quotes from Hosea, where it says it was not, they were not going to have compassion, they were not going to be his people, he says, you're going to be my people, and you're going to be called the sons of the living God. In Revelation 7, where the church is captured, is raptured up to the Lord, it says that they will be called the sons of God. They will be called, the, I'm sorry, men for God. Men for God. Men and women for God. It's a beautiful term. Men for God. Humanity for God has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And what is God wanting from Israel? Take a look at this picture. He says, I will marry you in faithfulness. Literally the word faith. Faith, faithfulness is the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. So in, in, the, in the Greek language, when you talk about the New Testament, when you see the word believe or faith, it's actually the word faithfulness. Now, what does that mean? It literally means this. God enters into our relationship with us, and he wants us to exercise faith. We're saved by grace through faith, but it also means faithfulness. Here's what God wanted from Israel. Israel, and from us as well. I'm going to give you something that nobody else can give you. Salvation, freely. It's a gift of God. It's your job now to be faithful. Ride your bike. I'm not going to ride it for you. You need to exercise your faith. You need to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. What God wanted from Israel was faithfulness, repentance. God will not reject a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He will never do that. And he sends us out to exercise our faith, just like this child. Mom bought the bike. Dad got the bike. Child could not get the bike. He couldn't afford the bike. It was a gift. But now the child has to work it out, put it into action which is the word for faithfulness. And so many times you see Ahab, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Gomer and Israel being connected together. Uh, Paul uses a very similar language when he talks about the church and our response to Christ as a bride. So this book, Hosea, is very dear to the heart of Christians because it's something we learn from. It was written for us, I'm sorry, to us, but for us. So we can learn what Israel did and how they fail, and we could avoid the trappings that comes from living in a fallen world and trusting in this world and trusting the things the world offers and having our bales and having all these things and yet not realizing that the Lord is our God. And it says, they forgot the Lord. But you see the last verses? You are my God. They will not forget anymore. But that's going to happen to the remnant of Israel up to the day of the Lord, if, when they see Jesus come back, after the church has been raptured, God's going to deal with Israel, and they will say, you are my God. That's future for them. There's a great promise. But first, God has to deal with their promiscuity. First, God has to deal with their idolatry and immorality. And I think God has to deal with the church's idolatry and immorality just as much. Not only our unfaithfulness to Jesus, but the real immorality within the church that Christians, Christians are called to live a holy life. And you begin to live a holy life by getting closer to Jesus. And you say, well, I'm not into any adultery and stuff like that. But the adultery begins in the mind and it begins in the heart. It begins in the imaginations of men. It begins in the heart of what we see or what we do or what we contemplate and what we imagine the most. It only takes a very short time for... Yeah, I'm talking to men, for what we imagine to actually come to fruition. And we have to remember that. It, 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 we, know, we don't jump into sin right away. It builds, and it gives birth to sin, James says. It actually gives you the, the anatomy of sin, the biological process of, of sin. It comes from our own desires to have our own way, to have our own thing, and forget the Lord, and forget that he's the one that has provided us with so much. And our response needs to be, faithfulness, repentance, and crying out to him so that we stay close to our God. Now, next week, we'll talk about the character of Hosea, chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's going to be really fascinating to see 
um, the heart of Hosea for his wife, but at the heart of the Lord for his people. And, and God is a broken, God is brokenhearted. And you see the passion of God. You, 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 not only will you know about God, but you'll feel, in a sense, the, 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 the brokenheartedness of a husband who his wife has turned away from him. And um, so God is very much in love with his people, desires his people to be with him, and he's going to make sure to the promises. In the place where they was called, you are not my people. You will be called the sons of the living God. And you know what's beautiful about that? We were, at one point, not his people. We were so far from God, away from the promises of God, in sin, children of disobedience. But in that place where we were saying, you're not, nothing to do with God, that's when you'd be called sons of the living God. And that's what the believers are today, sons of the living God. And we pray for Israel. We pray that these promises come to pass individually for each one of them, but also corporately at the end when Jesus comes. They'll celebrate that. And we'll be celebrating it together, Jew and Gentile, under one body. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. May your word be clear to our hearts and minds, clear to our spirit, Lord God. And may we enjoy a relationship with you, Lord, that is filled with joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Lord, these things, the fruit of the spirit, please bring that about in our lives, Lord. Help us to be faithful. And we pray, Lord, for each and every one of us here that we will walk with you just as much, Lord, uh, just as strong as we did today. Help us to walk with you tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.